uh, in times of energy shortages, it's absolutely critical to get energy right. Uh, we are at a time of energy shortage, which to us says we're probably entering a period of stagflation. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stable coins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. Doomberg, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be back. It's been uh, quite the uh, set of headlines since we last talked. Looking forward to uh, getting caught up again. Certainly has, my friend. Certainly has. I think you have been, uh, it's pretty safe to say, more right than wrong and definitely making some some pretty bold claims uh, the last time that we spoke that I think you've been pretty widely vindicated on. Um, I'd love to, for, for listeners who might have missed the last episode, maybe we can just start with your overall framework, which I think is very important for for folks to get, especially with the renewed interest on energy, uh, kind of coinciding with this this other trend of ESG and fossil fuels being bad, you have a great uh, kind of overall philosophy, which is that energy is life. Can you just break that down, how that works for us? Yeah, sure. So when we um, analyze the macro picture, I think it's important to consider um, a really important question, and, and it's the following one. Um, is the world currently um, in a period of excess primary energy production? Or, uh, or is it a period of um, shortages in primary energy? And when you view the world through that lens um, and you discover that the world is in a period of shortage, um, energy becomes the dominant commodity um, because energy is life. And quite literally, the amount of primary energy we produce puts a ceiling on the level of GDP we can experience. And if primary energy production is shrinking, it follows that... Um, that GDP will shrink and uh, economic recessions slash depressions uh, will follow. And um, for the better part of the last 15 years, um, the world has been in a period of relative energy abundance, thanks in no small part to the technological revolution in the U.S. shale patch. Um, all that came to a close uh, with the lockdowns of COVID-19, where a convergence of, of three parameters um, laid bare the fact that we have transitioned from abundance to shortage. And those were um, the um, lack of investment in maintenance and new growth in traditional fossil fuels driven largely by ESG pressures and the defund campaign, which has been very effective. Um, the recognition that many shale producers were burning cash um, and were funding production with unsustainable debt. And then the lockdowns associated with COVID-19 uh, drove many of those producers uh, over a cliff. They filed for bankruptcy, and the entities that emerged from bankruptcy with cleaner balance sheets um, have done so with a, a far greater focus on return of cash and cash flow over growth, which means we are not producing enough primary energy to run the world, and um, the world is is going through severe hiccups as a consequence of it. So I'll stop there and, and go in any direction you'd like to go. Yeah. I'd obviously love to you know, very soon get into Europe and the entire situation that's going on over there, but for those who those who might be not as familiar with the energy market, let's call it the global energy market. Um, could you kind of break down what are the most important different markets that are important to understand? Maybe you segment it by US, European, and, and Asian markets. And then what are the most important commodities? I just want to give uh, kind of a picture for folks that might not be as acquainted and deeply in the weeds with URS energy. Just what are the most sure. important dynamics for people to understand? So the first thing people have to understand is that there's an important distinction to be made between electricity and energy, and people get those things confused. Um, electricity is, of course, an important subset of our energy use, but it is actually a minor one. So if you are to sort of account for all of the energy that the globe uses, 
roughly in the Western world, at least 20% of our energy goes towards the production of electricity. Um, and the balance of it, 80% of it is used for heating and for production and manufacturing and transportation and all these, you know, HVAC and all these critically important um, sectors. Um, because of the ESG movement, um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on the development of fossil fuels. So what are the critically important inputs into our energy today? Well, when you look at the energy sector as a whole, something like 87% of our energy comes from fossil fuels. And the three most important fossil fuels um, are obviously oil, natural gas, uh, and coal. Um, when you attack the supply of those three critical elements uh, without a ready solution to replace them, um, that's where challenges begin. And so, um, you know, if we have decided that we want to optimize our economy around uh, CO2 emissions, um, there's, there's sort of another parameter we have to consider, which is sort of the standard of living that we're going to create for the populations. And um, ultimately, as a, an opening quote for one of our pieces that we used recently, uh, something to the effect of um, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And so um, we have um, entered a world where it is uh, sort of considered um, gauche to invest in traditional fossil fuels. Um, even this week, Mike Bloomberg is out with a big charitable donation to try to stop the development of more than 100 petrochemical plants in the U.S. Um, there's going to be an energy crisis as a fall as a consequence of this, and it's just undisputable. So if you look, um, it's undisputable. So if you look at um, coal, for example, um, we, we highlighted this in our Protier presentation just yesterday. The price of coal corrected for its energy content is more expensive than oil, which is the first example of this sort of market anomaly that we have ever seen. Um, and what does that say? That says that there's a desperate shortage for primary power and um, the up value uses of oil like gasoline, diesel, plastics, asphalt, etc., are not going to be in significant demand, which to us says we're probably entering a period of stagflation. So uh, in times of energy shortages, it's absolutely critical to get energy right. Uh, we are at a time of energy shortage, and um, that's why we've been relatively um, you know, have a relatively high success rate with some of our predictions. As you said, nobody bats a thousand, but uh, as it pertains to our warnings uh, on energy that we have been writing about for since the beginning of Doomberg 18 months ago, um, we feel like we have gotten more more right than wrong for sure. Maybe state the obvious, energy is a an increasingly, it, it's an extremely important input for basically all economies globally, right? So, which is why when you start to see energy prices climb as they have been, that's when you start to see disruption in the economy and then there's geopolitical strife. I want to use this as an opportunity to kind of maybe we can use the situation that's going on in Europe as an unfortunate example uh, of what happens when either ideology uh, kind of supersedes pragmatism or maybe when, you know, the the best laid what's the best laid plans of mice and men go awry. Yeah, yeah, uh, but whatever yeah. it is, um, I you know, now that we're you're we're quoting from literature, I actually think I'd, I'd prefer to use your fake quote here, which is uh, from Sun Tzu, probably, in times of war, hand all leverage to your enemy, then complain loudly when they use it. I love this as a way to kick this piece off. Can you kind of just explain to us, especially for those who are, are sitting in the United States, kind of wondering what is going, what in the world is going on over in Europe? Walk us through the energy situation over there and how that's leading to or contributing to or even being used as a weapon for geopolitical strife. In Europe... Um, 
for a combination of reasons, um, they have um, decided to stop local production of fossil fuels. Um, they have bet the farm uh, on wind turbines and solar power, uh, which come with you know um, their their own sort of host of challenges, which are totally knowable but often ignored uh, as people are sort of um, trying to create this uh, world filled up with happy unicorns and and um, pristine environments, uh, and then um, built an entire manufacturing um, industry, especially in Germany, uh, around the prospect of cheap natural gas uh, flowing from Russia uh, to Germany. And so the entire German business model is uh, predicated on being able to add value to cheap, reliable natural gas. Uh, and for decades, um, that has worked well. Uh, but in so doing, in, in banning fracking, for example, in Germany um, and attacking its own supply of nuclear power and um, refusing to develop um, their own uh, resources, uh, the, the Germans and Western Europeans in general um, have made themselves totally and completely um, at the mercy of Vladimir Putin. <clears throat> and um, as we say in that quote, you know, if you hand your geopolitical enemy uh, every uh, bit of advantage on the most important lever in the economy. Um, don't be surprised when one day they use it against you. And and that's what we're seeing play out in Europe today. And, and you know, um, there's a lot of sort of um, accusations of alarmism or that, you know, Europe will be just fine for the winter. And, and uh, we would say that the crisis is already here. Um, 45% producer price index readings in Germany are on the cusp of sort of hyperinflation. Uh, this is going to lead to significant deindustrialization uh, de of, of what was one of the most um, you know, uh, prolific uh, and um, value-added economies in the world. It's hard to imagine how um, this doesn't cause serious second and third order impacts downstream. And winter hasn't even started yet. You know? uh, and so um, we shall see. Um, um, hopefully peace breaks out and, and all of this proves to have been... Um, uh, an excessive warning, uh, but uh, we remain dubious uh, about such prospects. Hmm. I think the the strain that uh, rising energy costs, particularly in Europe, is, is putting on the the both the economies and just the populations in general, is leading to let's say some some interesting decision making on the political level, um, especially from from Europe's leaders. I think you actually have a, a term for it, which is Doomberg's law of anti logic. Um, you had a couple of predictions that went along with that, which was price gaps stimulus and protectionism. Can you kind of walk us through this principle of the law of anti-logic and what some of the consequences of it are? Yeah. So the law of anti-logic was a bit of a cheeky, um, <laughs> you know, we like to have fun with our writing as well. It can't yeah. all be, uh, you know, seriousness and doom and gloom. Um, although there's plenty of both uh, to choose from when we consider what we're going to write about next. Um, the law of anti-logic states that the current slate of Western leaders can be counted upon to make the worst possible decision uh, at every opportunity. And so let's just walk through um, some of the things that we predicted and, and that we're almost assuredly going to see. Um, one is if, if Europe is entering the winter with less molecules than it needs, which we believe is true and irreversible at this point, um, the next question becomes, um, what is the most efficient rationing of those molecules? Um, and we predict that that uh, will not be allowed to happen. And so. Um, we are seeing um, an attempt at capping price, uh, which, of course, impedes uh, the development of new supply. And more importantly, we're seeing um, massive stimulus being handed out just in the UK this morning, which is causing the British pound to crash and their government debt to spike in yield. Um, 
by 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 the understandable desire to shield small business and and residential consumers from the impacts of this energy crisis, um, they are going to create a situation in which um, the rationing is not efficient. Mm-hmm. In other words, the most important um, uses for that those limited molecules are best discovered through market forces, but market forces can be brutal. And the median voter um, is, is the voter that, you know, politicians are listening to and they will be uh, desperate to be seen as having done something. Um, and so the things they will do uh, will be the wrong things that you should be doing. Um, and the consequences will be um, uh, a bad situation will be made worse. Um, just a quick point on protectionism, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, Norway is a major producer of electricity using hydro. There's a drought in Europe. Um, they're entering the winter with very low water levels. They're a major exporter of electricity. If the Norwegians are forced to choose between um, rolling blackouts in their country or exporting less to their neighbors, um, you can guess what they're going to choose. Mm. And um, the Germans, having shut down or continuing to insist that they will shut down their remaining nuclear power plants, just like the Belgians have done today, uh, they shut down a uh, a large um, nuclear power plant um, when it's perfectly fine and perfectly operable and it's just sort of this self-impaled uh, suicide cult at this point. Um, will the Norwegians or the Swedish be so uh, interested in helping out um, the Belgians and the Germans uh, at the dead of winter when they're forced to choose who, who doesn't get heat? Um, we're going to see um, stresses uh, within the European Union, um, the likes of which we haven't seen probably since um, sovereign debt crisis. Uh, in the years after the global financial crisis. And we'll see, you know, the, the history of the EU is they come out of such crises more unified than before. And that's certainly the consensus opinion. Um, time will tell. Mm. You know, the, the funny thing about what you, what you laid out as responses, right, in the, the law of anti-logic is these are all tried and true responses to panics uh, that governments mm-hmm. tend to, that governments face. And there's a, a perfect 100% history of them failing, Right, uh, especially when it comes to something like price controls, whether that's grain in ancient Egypt or you know the price of wine in ancient Rome or whatever it is, it's like numerous times throughout history. Right, price controls have been implemented because it's so intuitive. I think it's so easy to understand as a political decision, but it's also so perfectly wrong at the same time. I wonder, could could you kind of walk us through specifically with maybe energy is such a good example because it's a perfectly inelastic good, right? Especially in a situation where energy is the difference between life and death in a frozen Europe. Can you can you walk us through just why the price controls, right? As a factor, if, if there's a listener that's even thinking that you could, you know, just lower the prices, right? The government could just mandate that the, that the price stays at an acceptable level. Can you just walk us through why exactly that's so doomed? Why does that continue to fail throughout history? Why is that going to be an ineffective policy in Europe? Um, because Europe can't print molecules. And so um, any proposed solution to a crisis of supply that does not lead to an increase of supply is doomed to fail. <laughs> it's mm. just that simple. Um, and, you know, um, energy is settled in U.S. dollars, and um, it's not settled in euros. It's not settled in Japanese yen. It's settled in U.S. dollars. And so um, that's why you're seeing massive weakening of the euro and the yen. Um, we should probably talk about Japan at some point because they could be the first domino to fall uh, in this crisis. Um, so what, you know, a, a great colleague or, you know, a fellow content creator, um, Alfonso over at, at Macro Alf, um, mm. has a really great analogy, which is uh, what's going on in Europe today is analogous to an exogenic shock that an emerging market might 
might experience. Say they have um, U.S. dollar denominated debt that they can't pay back, and um, they're, they're printing local currency, um, and, and they really can't. Since they can't print U.S. dollars, they can't, you know, um, settle that debt, and their economy goes through a period of hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he he correctly analogizes that to the confrontation facing um, Europe today, in the sense that um, they can't print energy. And so if they impose price caps, um, that does not produce more energy and likely produces less, which exacerbates the problem. Um, it's politically expedient in the short term, for sure, but it only temporarily puts off the inevitable confrontation with physics that must be, uh, that must be passed. And I would argue, uh, having thought about what Alf, what, what, um, Alf said, um, I would argue that Europe is less prepared to deal with such a crisis because they still view themselves as the sort of um, the pinnacle of enlightenment and uh, the civilized world. Whereas, you know, Argentinians are pretty familiar with currency crises. They've had to go through them, what, a dozen times, right? Um, Europeans are, um, I think, um, critically unaware of what's coming because it's just not even possible within their worldview that they should have sort of an Argentinian mindset to prepare with what's for what's coming. And, and so, um, yeah, price caps don't work because you can't print energy, you can't print molecules. Hmm. To what extent can we observe weakness in certain currencies as a reflection of their lack of energy independence, right? We're at a time, right, you know, at, at the time of this recording, I haven't checked today, but the dollar is, uh, the DXY um, is 111 or something like that, right? And the rate of change is certainly extremely high. At the same time, you're seeing, you know, almost historic weakness in the euro, the pound, the yen. I mean, how much of that weakness is a reflection of a lack of energy independence as opposed to the U.S., which we certainly have our own problems, but to your point, we have the dollar and we have the shale patch. Yeah, so DXY is trading at 112.60 as we're talking. Oh, um, and um, the intervention by the uh, by the Bank of Japan uh, in the yen, um, it's retraced about half of the... Of the um, of, of the move once that intervention was announced. Um, so this is a point we've made um, many times, which is the DXY, uh, which you mentioned, which everyone thinks is a, quote, measure of dollar strength. Um, it's actually a measure of dollar strength against predominantly three currencies. It's a measure against the euro, the Japanese yen, and the British pound. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes up 83% of that index. Mm-hmm. And all three of those regions are deeply short energy. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, as we've had some back and forth with some, obviously, people with far more experience and expertise in um, in, in, in currencies than, than we. But um, I would hazard a guess that in a time of energy shortages, that uh, energy might explain 75% of the variance of currency moves. Um, so you're seeing, obviously, the Russian ruble strengthen, and that's a very controversial thing to point out. But it's very clear that Russia has an excess of energy, and, and its currency is doing just fine. Um, the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar are doing better than the euro on a sort of relative um, measure because they have obviously excess commodities, even if not all of them can find their way to the international markets. Um, and so, yeah, uh, even Mexico, <laughs> the peso is uh, is outperforming um, uh, versus expectations. And so, yeah, I, I do think that um, when energy is short um, and you can't print you, know, you can't settle energy in a currency you can print. Um, I think it, it explains a fair bit of, of the variance. Do you do you foresee a, a situation where, you know, two two or all, all three of those constituencies uh, or that that they're involved in the, the the DXY, which is Europe, 
Britain, which I guess are somewhat independent at this point, although that's kind of unclear, and Japan, those are all allies of the United States, and they're feeling squeezed right now. Typically, when the dollar is in a period of immense strength, right, there's some sort of, uh, I don't want to say devaluing, but basically devaluing, right? There's like a, a plaza accord type situation where mm-hmm. uh, world leaders sort of get together, especially our allies, and say, hey, it would actually be a better situation for all those involved if the dollar was weaker. Do you view any sort of pressure or, you know, what, what is the possibility that there's some sort of dollar devaluation or concerted effort from, you know, major G7s basically to to lessen the strengths of the dollar? So you have a situation now where the chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve has staked his entire reputation and much of the reputation of the institution that he leads on combating inflation in the United States. Right. Um, for him to walk that back so soon, um, we think is probably inevitable, but I don't know what the path function is politically to get there. Um, in order to crush inflation in the United States, um, we believe, and obviously others who have written eloquently on the topic, like Luke Groman um, and Brent Johnson, um, believe that um, by in so doing, um, he, he will trigger a a currency crisis um, in the regions that we're talking about today. And, and I would ask, you know, um, people who think we're being a bit alarmist, what, what, what would define a crisis? You know, the, uh, as you're sitting here and I'll just pull it up because I just happen to have my trusty Bloomberg terminal open. Um, the Euro is trading at um, 97 flat to the dollar, you know, at like, well, let's define what a crisis is, you know, um, I think it's here, like as I said. And so now what, what's happening and what will happen in Europe and what we'll see play out in the coming weeks and months is a, a, the energy crisis will, um, that wave will go down to the second level effect of mm. energy intense producers closing down, which then will go to the third wave of people that supply and need the materials. You know, they supply goods and services to those industries and or um, – require their services and their products to run their business. You're just going to see this sort of this snapping of a whip through the supply chains and where the tip of that whip smashes the garage floor remains to be seen. Um, but it, it is not a healthy outlook. Now look at the times of maximum bearishness and maybe we're, we're a great contra, you know, it's Doomberg. Um, but uh, we, we still see significant pain ahead. And as long as Jerome Powell um, is staking his political life, on radically reducing inflation in the United States, it's hard to imagine how the sort of dollar wrecking ball, as it's been called, um, mm. doesn't smash doesn't smash a few glasses on the way. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance, and as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust. I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, and in a compliant manner. Helps me sleep easy at night, you know? 
As a seamless, trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exact team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. Um, maybe just one final question on this, and then I actually want to move on to the uh, the situation over in China. I Do, do you think, I, I understand, we, we've actually talked about it on the podcast as well, kind of this tension in between, for the Fed especially, managing, let's call it domestic monetary policy versus international monetary policy, right? And the responsibility that's owed to the rest of the world for being the issuer of the global reserve currency and how those are intentions, right? And that's the whole Triffin's dilemma uh, sort of thing. Do you think though that I I kind of feel that Jerome Powell, if he, the from a political standpoint, him getting up on, you know, from talking from Jackson Hole and doing his FOMC meetings and saying, we're going to stamp out inflation and yada, yada. But I think on the back end, he might have some less visible alternatives, right? Like even just opening swap lines, right? Or or buying Japanese or European bonds. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I actually, I wonder if the, it's possible for the Fed to talk very tough, right? In very easily, easy, politically digestible language, but on the same time, offer some amount of subsidy basically to our allies. Do you, do you see that as, as a possibility? I, I think, um, I think this, the consensus belief is that Powell will hike and tighten until something breaks. Mm. So then the question becomes, um, what breaks and how fast will that happen? Mm. And, and one candidate worth watching, which we mentioned earlier, and is the subject, hopefully, of our next piece, tentatively titled um, The Battle for the Yen, mm. is, in fact, the Japanese yen. So something critically important happened on Thursday of this week, which I'm happy to summarize briefly for your audience Please. who might not be as familiar. But uh, on Thursday of this week, the Japanese yen, um, has, which has been weakening substantially um, all year, uh, the Japanese yen punched through um, sort of a, a critical number of 145. And, um, you know, the higher that number is, the weaker the yen. So just to benchmark, you know, for, for seemed like forever, for decades, the yen traded between you know, 110 and 120, let's say. And starting in March of this year, it just, it's been on this incredible ramp from, uh, you know, started the year at 110 and it was, as I said, busted through that psychologically important barrier of, of 145. You can't have a currency of a developed economy um, depreciate like this without significant things breaking. And um, the, the, the Bank of Japan has decided that it is going to uh, make a stand uh, at 145. And when they first announced the news uh, on Thursday, uh, the yen, uh, you know, moved significantly lower um, and um, bottomed out at uh, 140 and change. Let's say 140.50. Uh, today, as we're talking, it's retraced half of that uh, that uh, strength, and it is weakening again. And it is at 142, 143.43.20 as we're talking. Um, if they can hold the line at 145, um, then this will just be another episode in which investors bearish on Japan get steamrolled by the government once again. The, the trade has a nickname. It's called the Widowmaker trade. Um, but at the same time, um, we now have a chart to watch and a number to look for, for a direct measure of the severity uh, of the economic crisis. Because I do think um, if, if the BOJ gets steamrolled, um, that that's going to uh, uncork a whole very, very interesting set of, of consequences 
that we think might um, might cause the Fed to pivot faster than Jerome Powell might like to. You're starting to get into it with uh, what what Alf was talking about with an, Japan looking like it's going through like an emerging market going through some sort of exogenous shock. Can you walk us through why why is there so much pressure on the Japanese yen as a currency? What are the problems that they're facing from a domestic standpoint? Well, they have um, a whole series of problems that have been um, you know widely understood and people assumed would lead to the crisis that we might be seeing unfolding today for a very long time. They, they include massive debt levels. The debt to GDP in Japan um, is enormous and terrible demographics. Um, you know, and so they have a shrinking population. Um, and, and, you know, um, the, the, basically there is no bond market in Japan anymore. The, the government buys and monetizes all the debt. Well, you know, um, historically that always leads to um, hyperinflation. Um, it hasn't yet in Japan, although it's beginning to um, with the currency weakening. The primary issue with the Japanese yen is they cannot um, settle <laughs> energy in Japanese yen. And so, um, and the way this sort of rebounds back into the United States, of course, is Japan was until recently a major buyer of U.S. treasuries. And so, you know, um, as you're seeing the Japanese yen weaken, you're also seeing um, the U.S. Uh, yields um, skyrocketing, right? And so um, I'm just trying to pull up the two-year as we talk, which is uh, my good friend Tony Greer calls the bat signal. If you look at, just look at a, a, a five-year chart of the of the of the U.S. Um, two-year yield, it's remarkable what has transpired. You know, it was basically at zero for the post-COVID era till late 2021, and now it's just at uh, as we're talking this morning, uh, going vertical at 4.19. Um, percent. And um, that's going to draw massive amounts of uh, liquidity into the U.S. away from countries like Japan. And um, and that's why we're seeing, you know, the Japanese yen weaken remarkably. And so um, the, the belief is that the, 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 the Japanese government can either control interest rates, which they need to because they have so much debt that even small moves in interest rates will, will lead to sort of a, a debt spiral where you have to issue more debt just to cover the interest. Um, or they can uh, strengthen the currency and they can't do both. And so um, they clearly have decided to manage yields at the expense of the currency. But now this week they're trying to sort of, you know, when you squeeze a balloon, um, the amount of air in it just moves. And so, um, you know, they're just now they're going to have to deal with the bulge of a weakening currency. And, and I don't know what the solution is, um, especially if Jerome Powell is, is insisting upon um, breaking the back of inflation in the United States. Walk us through. I mean, do you have any thoughts on the the situ the Chinese situation uh, writ large? Because you know, from my understanding, they're a large importer of energy as well. They also are, you know, they are somewhat politically tied to Russia. Uh, maybe they're uneasy enemies is the way that it could be best described. At the very least, I'm sure they're watching the situation in Ukraine very closely. Obviously, no secret, right? That they that they uh, you know reunification with Taiwan has certainly been in the, on their docket. Uh, for a long period of time, what is what is your take on on the whole Chinese situation? Yeah. So before I, I dive into that, I just want to make very clear that uh, we believe that China is is really a black hole for most Western analysts, and um, and we would be among those that um, find it difficult to understand what's going on in China. I'm glad you um, said that. I'm glad you said that because I also, you know, have caveated that on this show before. That I feel like yeah. I'm getting a lot of information from 
yeah, Western people, you know, who you, you miss enormous things. So I'm thank I yeah. appreciate you saying that caveat. Thank you. Yeah, and like, uh, we could, but I'm happy to speculate. But yeah. uh, I, will, I will instead of sort of speculating, I'll at least outline what we think are four major unknowables mm. um, that uh, we should be on the lookout for, and that um, at least when you can identify what shifts you need to see uh, in order to understand what the next move is going to be, then then at least you know what to look for. So, the first major unknowable is when will zero COVID policies end, uh, and they eventually have to. Um, I, we, we find their zero COVID policies to be literally insane. There must be a reason that they're doing this. Um, we don't know what that reason is, but by inducing um, lockdowns in massive, um, at massive scale, they are certainly toggling back significant demand for energy and oil in particular. And so um, some of the weakness that we're seeing in the oil market can be attributed to this crazy zero COVID policy that uh, she has been implementing. I have a, by the way, just uh, on that note, I, not that I also have any special insight here, but I actually have spoken to just by, by luck, actually a couple um, Chinese nationals recently. And I, I asked the same question, you know, exactly what, why are, what is up with these zero COVID policies? It doesn't seem to make an enormous amount of sense. And the consensus that I heard was it, it, it's basically a campaign promise. Right, the CCP yeah. right has the the dubious responsibility right of there's no tra- peaceful transition of power right when they make campaign promises they're always trying to think about like how can I deliver more how can I make uh, these kind of constant ongoing campaign promises and that they kind of hung their hat from what I understand domestically on China handling the COVID situation better than the West so then it becomes very politically important that the situation the strategy that they outlined at the outset was the right one. Yeah, but they could just make up the case numbers. I mean, and they could yeah. reorient the propaganda machine pretty simply, which brings us to the second point, which you sort of began to allude to, which is um, the second major unknowable is uh, Xi's gambit at the upcoming 20th National Congress uh, of the Chinese Communist Party and his his angling to be essentially um, what we call appointed dictator for life. And it uh, yeah. looks like he's going to, to achieve that. And maybe those two are related that once he, you know, um, cements his position on the throne. Um, the propaganda machine will be reoriented around celebrating a great COVID victory and ignoring any cases that come up or calling them the flu or pick your favorite, you know, mm. um, pick your favorite um, uh, propaganda tool. Because they could totally do that. Right? I mean, like they, they, they make massive uh, disasters just disappear from the news. Um, that's no big deal. Um, the third is the property and, and drought crises that are ongoing um, in China. Uh, these are, again, very difficult for um, Western analysts to understand the flows. Um, you might get half of the news and, and position yourself one way, only to be steamrolled by a bigger flow going the other direction. So, for example, um, it, the, will the property crisis radically reduce demand for copper uh, and other you know, cement and, and other sort of um, primary uh, uh, energy-intense materials? Um, and then the drought, of course, limits their ability to produce energy. So that's a flow in a different direction. Um, you know, hydro is 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 significantly impacted and the ability to get coal around the country can be a challenge if they don't have enough rail and so on. And then the last one, um, which you alluded to earlier and is, is sort of the mother of all black swans is um, what is their intent and timing over Taiwan? Right. Um, and uh, how much is bluster and w- w- what threats are real? Um, that This is, again, um, we incorrectly assume that Putin wouldn't be so foolish to move into Ukraine. Um, we were wrong. And uh, he did. And so I, I, we hesitate to make any predictions about 
what the minds of um, people who are basically dictators, um, how they think about the world and who feeds them information and how much critical feedback are they getting? We suspect precious little. So who knows what Xi is telling himself about the military capabilities of, of China and the need to move on Taiwan. Hmm. Do you have a, a, let's call it a secular thesis on the price of energy and maybe just a related um, a related outcome there, which is just inflation over the course of the next, let's say, five to 10 years. I mean, certainly you've made, you've outlined the case very clearly for an underinvestment in energy. For you, does that mean sustained higher energy prices over the next, say, five to 10 years? And if we do wind up with that situation, is inflation a necessary outcome? So this is the, the big question, right? And, um, you know, we once posted a chart that compared the price of oil um, during the financial crisis and the NASDAQ. And Javier Blas, who's a great energy columnist at mm. Bloomberg, is out just as we're talking. A tweet went through my screen, um, basically comparing the price of oil today to the price of oil back then. Um, when, um, you know, the, the price spikes in energy, which peaked, you know, just months before the global financial crisis in what we would call uh, an interesting coincidence, at least, um, you know, there's the, the 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 boomerang effect of crushing demand, and since energy is so you know inelastic, as you mentioned earlier, um, the drop in demand overwhelms the sort of supply shortages, and suddenly you are now in a situation where you have excess relative to the demand. Um, and so, I would say, um, in fact, yeah, I, I'm going to retweet it uh, right now, and and maybe if, if this is published soon enough. Um, you know, it's literally following trace for trace the exact same uh, price movements coming out of the global financial crisis. Now, I would say um, in 2009 and 2010 and 2011, we began to see the beginning of the of the shale revolution. And I don't see the cavalry of new energy production coming um, that will allow that to continue. And so I, I suspect it's going to be stagflation, which is, you know, shrinking economy while still for much of the world. Um, uh, they're going to be dealing with significant um, inflationary pressures. Now, since the economy is a chaotic system and sensitively dependent on initial conditions, maybe you know a butterfly that flaps its wings is um, the Japanese lose control of the currency and that causes um, second and third order effects in the US and we see you know economic destruction here. Um, and Jerome Powell can claim that he, he beat back the beast of inflation. Um, hard to imagine that you know the combination of either significant inflation and or an economic depression doesn't cover most of the most of the potential outcomes here. Mm. Do you view a some sort of recession or global macro turndown or to whatever whatever phrase you want to call it, you know, destruction of economic activity and capital? Do you view that as an inevitability at this point? Are we already living through the beginnings of one? I'd say Europe certainly is. Mm. Um, the US less so because of the advantages that we articulated earlier. Hmm. Um, and the U.S. could also benefit, again, mapping these flows, the U.S. could benefit from the deindustrialization of, of Europe as, say, chemical producers on the Gulf Coast hmm. take advantage of the massive spread in natural gas, and we see a wave of investment here, assuming that we can have some sanity uh, in the regulatory framework needed to take advantage of those spreads. Hmm. Um, but at a minimum, you know, the, as we've long said, the companies that are back integrated to the U.S. energy complex but can price their product uh, uh, globally are going to be printing cash for the next um, several years uh, until this until Europe gets serious about producing its own energy. Mm. Um, even if they successfully develop the infrastructure to import enough LNG to wean themselves off of Putin, they're just developing new dependencies. Um, and while the U.S. and the you know uh, EU might have great relationships today, that doesn't mean that 
it'll always be that way, you know. Um, and and in fact, um, we might be be seeing a, a rightward tilt uh, in European politics that we've been warning about. Um, the uh, head of the EU was out today saying, "quote We have tools if the election in Italy goes quote the wrong way." Um, you know, this unelected bureaucrat basically um, pre-nullifying uh, a democratic election in Italy is is unlikely to go over well in Italy. Um, and so that only feeds the sort of populism that we see growing um, uh, across Europe. And so that's another example of sort of a, a, a butterfly that could flap its wings. You know, if, if there is a true fragmentation uh, of politics in Europe where you see a rightward tilt in some of the important countries, um, that, that changes the game. And so would the left-leaning administration in the U.S. be as amenable to, to a continent that has sort of uh, made a right turn and is trying to cozy up with Putin because they need to come to a detente in order to get some energy? Um, and so yet just because they're sort of developing this, you know, ability to import from others, it doesn't mean that they're solving the real problem, which is they can't produce. Dangerous time. Yeah. And coupled with that, it's, you know, these, these periods of stress certainly make it easier, you know, the me- a more conductive medium for the spread of ideas, right? Uh, and in a weird way, stress does tend to unify, unify people. And again, you know, we started off this interview when we're looking at kind of the history of price controls, a long, very well-established histories of price controls. Another very long, well-established historical trend is the rise of populism in the face of record inequality or times of economic stress, right? I like I kind of tend to trace everything back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And at the very top, yeah. you have food and shelter and all of these other, basically every other ideal short of that is is certainly secondary, right? So when so when you start to see the those those needs at the top of the pyramids threatened kind of everything else is on the table, I think. Yeah. And again, the headlines are coming in, you know, fast and furious here. And, and, you know, just as we're talking, you know, Estonian prime minister warns Russia could be preparing to disconnect the three Baltic countries from its electricity grid uh, leading to potential blackouts. You know, we're going to see, um, well, we're, let's put it this way. We are running an uncontrolled experiment and the parameters of possible outcomes um, are not well understood yet, uh, and 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 like we say, I, I, it's called Doomberg, and we don't want to be, you know, <laughs> we'd overly doomy. And and as we've said uh, in every form um, possible, uh, we would love nothing more than to come back on your show in one year and apologize for having been alarmist, uh, because that would mean that the worst of potential outcomes um, were uh, were abated. And, uh, you know, we have hundreds, probably more than a thousand subscribers from Europe. And um, we have many uh, fans that we interact with and people that we respect in the country. And that, as much as I traveled to China, I, I personally traveled to Europe even more. And I probably count 20 um, uh, stamps on my passport for trips I've made to Germany. Um, it's a beautiful country. I, I have many German friends. We would love nothing more than for the things we have been warning about to have uh, been proven uh, uh, alarmist um we so that that's probably a good place to close <laughs> i agree actually uh, one more i have one more if i could impede on your time sure. here. if you had to steel man the argument for why it might not be as doom and gloom as it seems and to give you context here i because i've, I've started to really feel myself ingesting a lot of uh kind of kind of doomy content um and i was looking for i i wanted to go the last time i remember feeling like this was March of 2020. And I went back and I listened to a bunch of the material that I was consuming around that period of time. And I'll be honest, a lot of it was 
probably not directionally correct. Um, you know, you had people at the very bottom kind of screaming for it's going liquidity does not equal solvency, all of these arguments for why it was going to get an enormous way, way, way worse from from where we were. And at least for the two years hence, right? It is it is not played out the way that it, it was kind of being predicted. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen this time, but I think it's good to allow for the idea that maybe we could be wrong about this and maybe it could not be as bad as we think. If I know that's not necessarily your opinion, but if you had to steel man the, yeah, the argument for why this could be other than I, what we're I talking think, about. I think um, peace breaking out in Europe would solve a lot of these problems. And I'm old enough to remember when um, hoping that peace would break out was sort of a left, <laughs> left-leaning opinion uh, <laughs> as opposed to today, you know, um, this sort of, assumption that if you would like peace in Europe, that somehow you're pro-Putin or, or um, right-wing and so on. Um, so peace either breaking out uh, through a durable negotiated settlement or um, less likely and more risky, um, you know, a total victory on the part of the Ukrainians and Putin gets poppled and Lord knows what happens after that event horizon. Um, but, you know, a durable peace breaking out um, in Europe uh, would be a, a game changer. Um, and would cause uh, most of our assumptions uh, about what to expect in the coming months to be revisited. Yeah. All right. Well said. Doomberg, you produce an enormous amount of extremely high quality information. We gave you these props. I mean, the, you last time you came on the show, um, you know, you, we were certainly talking about some of the same themes. I think you've been vindicated across many of those themes. If folks want to find out more about you, follow you, uh, subscribe to the work that you do, what is the best way uh, for them to do that? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, uh, Michael. We are 100% subscriber supported. We take no ads and uh, accept no sponsorships. Nothing wrong with those business models, but we we pride ourselves on having 100% editorial freedom. Um, we write at uh, doomberg.substack.com. Um, we have uh, a really am- amazing set of of subscribers, and um, and we write six to eight times per month. Um, we're very comfortable with that cadence. And then uh, we also are very active on Twitter. I'm at Doomberg T as in Twitter. Um, somebody is squatting on the Doomberg name, but that's fine. Um, and so we have many imposters on Twitter. Be sure to check and see the follower count um, before deciding to follow um, the real Doomberg T. Um, and those are the two main outlets for our uh, our work. And I really appreciated the opportunity. At, at, um, every time you and I chat, uh, it, it's really fantastic experience. And, and um, so, yeah, I appreciate coming back and, and looking forward to doing it again sometime. Same, my friend. Same. All right. Cheers. We'll do it again soon. Yeah. Bye.